How many of you know what a Berkucci is? A Berkucci. That's what I thought. A Berkucci is an Asian man who trains eagles. And he, there's quite a ritual involved in all this of trapping the eagle, taming the eagle, training the eagle, and caring for the eagle. These men will capture an eagle either in its nest or through a baited net, and they will bring it into a caged area, and they will put it on a little, a little swing, a little swing that will never stop swinging. And they will cover its head so it can't see, and they will feed it no food for three days. So the bird can't go to sleep because it's constantly swinging. It can't eat. And all the while that this is going on, while this trainer, this Bercucci, is training this eagle, he's singing to it, chanting to it, talking to it for hours and hours and hours. When he feels that the time is right, he will begin the training of this eagle. He will feed it. He will stroke it. He will sing to it and talk to it. And he'll cause this bond to be built between him and the eagle to the point that for many eagles, they will become completely loyal to him. They will become the hunter for him. Not all eagles will be trained. Some, some eagles will resist it and will not. But in many cases, the eagles are trained to be completely loyal to their master. The story sounds a little bit harsh. And yet it's a beautiful picture of what God does with his people. He brings affliction upon them. And he causes them to be broken of their independent spirit. And he causes them to be useful for God. Now as we watch the life of Joseph over the last several weeks. Joseph has been a man who's been broken. He was at the top of the world. His brothers betrayed him. Almost killed him. And sold him off into slavery, into Egypt. And for 13 years, he's either been a slave or he's been in prison. He's a man who's been broken. But he's a man that God has prepared for a great service. Joseph knows what it is to be in despair. He knows what it is to be without food. He knows what it is to be falsely accused. And now, he is second in command of all of Egypt. And he is caring for the needs not only of the Egyptians in this famine, but for all the neighboring nations who come there for food. Because there is only food in Egypt. You know, a lot of us don't like to deal with guilt. No one likes to deal with guilt, either in the life of somebody else or in our own lives. And many times we're very quick to find a way to stuff it down. We're kind of like the man who wrote a letter to the IRS. Said the following. Please find my check for $150 enclosed. My conscience has really been bothering me. If it continues, I will send you the rest. We sometimes just want just enough guilt to feel bad... But we never get to the point of godly sorrow. We all experience worldly sorrow. Something happens, we're sad about it. Either we caused it or it happened to us and we're grieved about it. But it never really brings us down to the point to where we see ourselves for who we really are. And this story today is the beginning of three chapters in which God begins to work in the lives of Joseph's ten Brothers. This group is a tough bunch. No choir boys here. If this is a homeschooling family, it's gone amok. If it's a public school family, it's gone amok. If it's a private school family, it's gone amok. This family has serious, serious problems. If there wasn't America's 10 most wanted, at least four of them would be on it. If you remember, let's think back. 
we have Simeon and Levi. Remember the story back in Genesis 34, where Shechem, the son of Nahor, sleeps with Dinah. And because of that, they talk to the Shechemites and they say, listen, if you'll all circumcise yourselves and you can marry with us and you can have our, we can share our possessions. So after all the men were circumcised and were incapacitated, Simeon and Levi strapped on the sword and slaughtered every male in the village. And the other brothers went around capturing the women and children and all the possessions. This is who we're dealing with. Or let's go to Genesis 38 in Judah. Judah had three sons. The first son married Tamar. He was so wicked, God struck him dead. The second son was supposed to carry out his conjugal rights to her so that his first brother could still have a line of inheritance. And he was so wicked that God struck him as well. And finally we come to the third son and Judah does not let Tamar marry him. And so Tamar dresses up as a prostitute along the road. Judah goes into her and she conceives and Judah almost has her killed because she's immoral of all things. Then we have Reuben, and Reuben, of the, of the top four that are the worst, he's probably the best of the worst, he just slept with his father's concubine. So this is who these people are. They have betrayed their brother, almost killed him, threw him off into slavery, walked home, wiped their, wiped their mouth, stood before their father, and told a bald-faced lie that they've now been telling for 22 years. And holding on to it. And God, in his providential hand, is getting ready to move to deal with them. Take more than just a little bit of pressure to bring these men to their knees. The title of our message is When God Brings You to Your Knees. It's a great thing. It's a glorious thing. And God's going to show us how he does that in this passage. So for the next three chapters, this is a long dialogue back and forth as God deals with these men. It's amazing how intricate this passage is, the back and forth between Joseph and his brothers. All the trips back and forth to Egypt they make. God spends three chapters dealing with it. And in the Young Men's Bible, so we've, learned, we've understood that if God spends a lot of time dealing with something, it's important. So God's going to show us how he deals with us and how, he, how we deal, should deal with other people in regards to these things. Now, there's more going on here than just dealing with the brothers and their situation. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. God's talking to Abraham. And if you remember, Abraham split these animals and God walked through those animals making a pledge to him. And Abraham went into a deep sleep. And while he's sleeping, God says this. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great great possessions. So way back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his his grandchildren and great-grandchildren would be taken to a land that wasn't their own. And they'd be there for 400 years. So part of what's going on here in 42, 43, and 44 and into 45... It's not always God dealing with the hearts of the ten brothers. He's also moving the household of Jacob to a new home, a new residence. 101 Goshen Street, right there in Egypt. That is part of the purpose of what he's doing here. And so, we want to look today at this passage and... What this passage teaches is this. God uses affliction 
and kindness to awaken our conscience and bring us to repentance and reconciliation. Let me say it again. God uses affliction and kindness to awaken our conscience and to bring us to repentance and reconciliation. As we look in verses, uh, in the last part of 41 through 42.5, we see that God uses crises to bring us to repentance. In Genesis 42.6 through 42.25, we see God uses people to bring us to repentance. And finally, in 26 through 38 of Genesis 42, <clears throat> God uses the consequences of our sin to bring us to repentance. So God's goal is to use affliction and kindness to awaken our conscience so that it produces repentance and eventual reconciliation. God's not happy with the status quo. And he uses crises, people, and our own consequences for our sin to break us and to cause us to repent and be reconciled to him. In verse 4157, we read the following. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. God orchestrated the famine to get his people where he wanted them. It was real simple. Egypt will have the food. Nobody else has food. Guess where we're all going to go? We're going to go to Egypt to get food. And oh, by the way, there's a guy there who happens to know you guys. Very well. And he happens to be the guy who passes out all the food. So the train is heading toward the wall. and We're going to be dealing with some things down the road. Psalm 105, 16 and 17. Let's turn there. The psalmist writes... 105, 16 to 17. But he summoned a famine on the land, and he broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. He summoned a famine. Who summoned a famine? God. God was just nice enough to tell Joseph through the dreams of Pharaoh what he was going to do so that he could make preparation to be a blessing to Egypt and to all of the nations around him. And Joseph did exactly what the the dream demanded. They set aside food, they prepared, now they are the breadbasket of the entire Middle Eastern world. We're now two years into the famine, everybody's reserves are going down, And now everyone has to come to Egypt to get their bread. Now, we think about Joseph as just being the guy who distributes the bread, takes care of the situation. I'm not going to get a chance to preach the next chapter, so I'm going to do a little sneak over into it, because there's an insight I want you to see. Look at verse 21 and 22 of Psalm 105. He says... He's talking about the king. The king made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. I mean, Joseph did everything. And he's teaching the royal court wisdom. I wonder what kind of wisdom he's teaching them. Let's go to 43. Genesis 43. I mean, it's just a little statement here. This is why there's always so much more to get out of God's word. There's just so much there. We're going to fast forward. They come back with their money that they've been given. They're trying to give it back to the steward. 
Okay? And saying, listen, we didn't take the money. Somehow it was in our sack. We're trying to give it back. Look at verse 23. Here's what the steward says to them. They were kind of stressed. Matter of fact, they're stressed through these next three chapters. They are seriously stressed through these chapters. Okay? God has turned up the heat. Verse 23. The steward replies, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Somebody was discipling the steward. Someone was teaching the steward the ways of the Lord. Now I know we're focused on Israel and getting them down to Egypt and we're focused on the, on the wickedness of the ten sons. But imagine the testimony of the glory of God that Egypt got to experience. Pharaoh raises up a man who tells them that God has shown him in a dream, the one true God, that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And then that exactly happens. Egypt was full of gods. All kinds of false gods. The sun god. Pharaoh was a god. Frogs were gods. It was ridiculous. Everything was a god. And yet, through this man, not only is he going to save the household of Israel, he's going to be a testimony to the glory of the one true God. And Israel will be having a front row seat to watch what God does. Did they take advantage of it? Doesn't look like they did. But was God gracious to them? He sure was. Did he put his glory on display for them? He sure did. And Joseph and those fortunate men who were in his court got to hear the truth of God's word. I would say on a regular basis. Just from looking at these scriptures. So God's going to use this crisis to shake up the household of Jacob. And we see here in 42 that Jacob says, hey, there's grain in Egypt. Why do you look at one another? It's pretty simple. No food, food. Young boys should understand that. Let's go get some food. They looked at each other. They weren't taking any positive steps of action. What was the problem? Well, there's probably several reasons they didn't want to go to Egypt. First of all, it was a long trip. 250 to 300 miles. Probably from here to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And back. Six-week trip. If nobody else has food and you're bringing food back to Canaan, that's not a safe venture. That's a little scary. Also, we know from Scripture that the Egyptians didn't have a lot of respect for the shepherds. They didn't. Matter of fact, when they came into the Promised Land, they put them in Goshen. They wanted them kept away from them. So they could easily see themselves being falsely accused or put into slavery. But I think the main reason they didn't want to go to Egypt is the word Egypt. That brought back a memory of an Ishmaelite caravan one day headed to Egypt. And it brought back the picture of them stripping Joseph of his robe, trying, deciding whether to kill him or not kill him, throwing him into the pit. The cries and the pleas for help the look on his face as he pled with them to please don't do this. The thought of going to Egypt and while there seeing a bunch of slaves over here to the side working and noticing, hey, is that our, is that our brother? They didn't want to go to Egypt. Guilt's that way, isn't it? 
place, a person, a circumstance reminds us of something we shouldn't have done or something we've done in the past, something we haven't dealt with. This famine is beginning to awaken their conscience. They've tried to stuff it down. They tried to stuff the guilt down. They tried to move on. And yet God's not going to let them move on. They have a one-way ticket to Egypt. Plenty of seats on the plane. No problem. That's where they're going. Notice in verse 4, however, Jacob's not going to let Benjamin go with them. As we'll see later in this passage, Jacob has been completely shaken by the loss of Joseph and his dear bride, Rachel. And he's at least a little suspicious of letting the boys take Benjamin anywhere. The last time the boys went off, the boys came back with no Joseph. And some story in a robe with some blood on it and some extra change in their pocket. That didn't quite seem right. Or maybe they, he's watched them with Benjamin. You know how much they love favoritism. Remember how much they love favoritism with Joseph? Could he have watched how they were treating Benjamin? Because he was treating Benjamin the same way. Benjamin was his only son from Rachel. He was the favorite And these guys have no conscience about doing whatever they want. God could have left them in their spiritual lethargy. But he didn't. There's, I'm sure, a lot of reasons in God's mind for orchestrating the famine. But we know clearly one of them was to bring them to Egypt. God uses the weather and forces of nature for his purposes. We've seen that all throughout the scripture, haven't we? How about the little thing called the flood? That was kind of a weather phenomenon, wasn't it? Or how about the three and a half years of drought when Elijah prayed and God shut the cloud, shut the sky up and there was no rain in Israel because of the wickedness of, of Ahab and that kingdom. What about the storm that came up when Jonah was on the boat and they had to throw him over to stop the storm? What about Jesus standing up and saying, peace be still, and the Sea of Galilee completely calms down. God has power over the weather. And everything we receive comes through his hand. Thank you, Lord, for the rain that we have today. He uses the weather to direct the course of history. Way back in the May of 1588, Spain was the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. And King Philip had decided that he needed to take on England and, and bring her under his control. So he sent the mighty Spanish armada north toward England. A hundred warships. The most powerful navy on the planet. And as they're heading north... He doesn't engage the English Navy. He engages something greater. A hurricane. A hurricane that just happens to not be in its normal path that hurricanes take. The hurricane was way north of what it normally would have gone. At the end of the game, Hurricane 100... Spanish Armada, nothing. Completely devastated the Spanish Armada. And that one day caused Spain to no longer be the world power that it was. In one day, he brought that empire down. Back in England, the queen had a praise phrase that she said, He blew and they scattered. You know, our coin says, in God we trust. But I'm sure their coin said, he blew, they scattered. The glory of God on display. God is in control of the weather. 
David McCullough in his book 1776 refers to a situation in April, latter part of April, 1776. The situation was there were some there were 9,000 American soldiers on Brooklyn, on the Brooklyn side of the river. They were they were looking down the, the guns of the British Navy. They were they were almost to the point of being entrapped on that island. Night settled in, and George Washington said, "Listen, we're going to have to get everybody off of this. This we're going to have to get them across the river into safety." In November 2012, Bree and I went to New York. We walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. That's a fur walk. That's about, that's about a mile and a half to two miles to get across that thing. And so all night these boats were bringing troops across and equipment across, back and forth. Not a word, no light. But 9,000 troops? By the morning, as dawn was coming up, there was still a lot of troops who hadn't gotten out of harm's way. And all of a sudden, this thick fog just kind of descended upon the river. So thick, you couldn't see more than six feet in front of you. They're continuing to move people back and forth across. When the last people are across onto New York Island, the fog lifts. The British look out. There are the American troops. God controls the weather. God controls crisis. This time he blew and the fog gathered. First time he blew and scattered the armada. God brings, God's in charge of crises. Whether it's weather, whether it's a financial crisis, an economic collapse, Relational crisis, an integrity crisis where all of a sudden our sin is exposed to a lot of people. In all those crises, the purpose of those is to bring us to repentance. And that's the purpose of this crisis for these brothers. So first, God uses crises to bring us to repentance. Secondly, he, brings, he uses people to bring us to repentance. Verses 6 and following, we see that Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. And we already went over that. But notice that Joseph deals with his brothers harshly. He's constantly questioning, are they spies and are they honest men? And here's what's amazing is they continue to tell him, we are honest men. Really? We are honest men. There was a brother, but he isn't no more. Well, that he is right there. There's the one who was no more. He's right here standing, talking to you. He is going to put the pressure on. And he's very gracious in how he does it. But he brings the pressure to bear upon these brothers to bring them to a point where they understand what they've done. Have you ever sinned against somebody and it really wasn't that big a deal for you? Really? And you really didn't see any pro- Why were they all upset? And then they kind of tell you what you did. And then you put yourself in their shoes and you go, wow, that was bad. That was wicked. And sometimes because God is so good to take what's done, what, what has been done with an evil purpose and turn it to good... We tend to take away, eh, it wasn't that bad. This situation with Joseph and his brothers was wicked. No other way around it. To take him, to kidnap him, and to send him off in the slave traffic. 
and it'd probably have killed him if, if Reuben hadn't been there. There is such wickedness in these men. How is Joseph going to help them see this? How can he do that? I mean, he could have saw them and said, Hey, I'm your brother Joseph. Everything's working out great. We had a little problem back there, you know, didn't go real well. But hey, I'm doing good now. And good news is we're all going to be family again. Uh, These guys weren't ready for that. And so Joseph is going to work on them to bring them to that point. 22 years ago, Joseph 17, all of his brothers are older. He is overpowered by them. He's in a position of weakness. He's begging for his life. All of a sudden, the tables turned. I mean, turned big time. Look at verse 40, chapter 41, verse 44. Pharaoh's telling Joseph what he's going to do. Listen to what he says. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's some power. And because they had the bread, he's the most powerful person in that entire region. And he's sitting there, and one day he looks up and, oh, look who's here. Ten shepherds. That guy kind of walks like Simeon. That guy kind of talks like Reuben. They're here. And they come and they know the protocol. They bow before him and he remembers the dream. The question is, what's Joseph going to do? question is, what would you do? 13 years in slavery, in prison, with your hands bound at the lowest point in your life. And God's been faithful to bring you and bring you and keep pulling you up and pulling you up. But now here they are. They're right there. All you have to do is say the word. And they're in prison for the rest of their lives. Or you could torture them. That's an idea. I mean, there's all kinds of thoughts that can just go through our mind, aren't there? Would Joseph seek revenge? Or would Joseph use this to bring reconciliation? That's a big question. Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. That's true, isn't it? When a person has complete reign to do what they want, what are they going to do? This is why it's really important who goes to Washington and goes to the state capitol. And who is over your business? And who is leading your church? And who is leading your family? When people have power and they don't have character, it's a bad combination. And yet, Egypt is blessed because look who they have. They have Joseph. Joseph. Who is caring not only for the Egyptians, but for all people as they come for food. Now, why didn't the brothers recognize him? Well, he was 17 when he was thrown in the pit and sold off into slavery. Now he's 39. That does make a difference in the way you look. Um, He was clean shaven. He was wearing the garments of royalty. He was speaking with confidence and power. and, And he was speaking Egyptian. And he was using an interpreter. So all the foreigners, were, he was, they were being interpreting. He was speaking in Egyptian. And he had a different name tag. He didn't say Joseph from Canaan. It wasn't one of the conference things. Joseph from Canaan here. It was uh, 
Zephanath Paneah. That was his new name tag, Zephanath Paneah. And bottom line is they could have never imagined that Joseph could have ever been in this position. It was beyond their wildest dreams. Reminds me of Lori. She went to Half Price Books one day and she was finding some great bargains. Went to check out and she's digging around trying to find her ID that shows she's a teacher. She's digging around and the guy behind the, behind the counter has a beard and he's looking at her and he goes, um, you don't need to show me your ID. I know you're a teacher. She looked at him. You are my fourth grade teacher. I mean, here's this guy, 26, 27, beard. She's like, little Tommy? No! It's hard to recognize this, isn't it? Give us 20 years, especially in that age. So Joseph takes the opportunity to present, to find out where his father and brother are. I think I'd be concerned about my brother if I knew these guys were still hanging around the house. Found out Benjamin's okay, dad's still okay. And now what Joseph's going to do, he's going to give his brothers a chance to experience in a small dose what they let him experience in a large dose. He's going to recreate the same situation. There's an old saying, he can dish it out, but he can't take it. You heard that one? People are great at dishing out stuff, can't take it. I'm, I'm amazed at the people who are super, super critical. They criticize everything. And then you point out one thing in their life and they just go, they go nuts. They can give it out, but they can't what? Take it. So Joseph is, the only way these brothers are going to be broken is for them to have to experience what Joseph experienced. And so this is what he does. First, he deals with them harshly. That seems very unkind, Joseph, to do that. No. What do you think they did when he came over that hill to check on them from Dothan? Remember, he had just given a bad report to his dad before. What's a bad report? They were doing some stuff they weren't supposed to be doing. And he told his dad. So they come over the hill and he's like, and they're saying, I'm sure they're saying to him, Oh, what are you doing here, Joseph? Are you ready here to spy on us again? Come on over here. We want to talk to you a minute. He treated them roughly here. Because guess what? They had treated him roughly there. He accused them of being spies at least four times in this passage. Verse 9, 12, 14, and 16. Over and over again, he accused them of being spies because guess what? They accused him of being a spy. You came here to spy on us, didn't you? Yeah. We're going to teach you a lesson. They threw him in a pit. He throws them in jail. For three days. Let's look at this. So on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain back to the famine for the famine in your families. And look what they say in verse 21. After being in jail three days, he was in prison or in, or, or in slavery for 13 years. In three days, they say in verse 21, Then they said to one another, again, they didn't know he could hear them or understand them. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that he saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress is coming on us. Their consciences were beginning to awaken. Is it not true? If you've been in a situation where you've mistreated somebody and then you receive the same thing, all of a sudden, we see it from a whole different perspective, don't we? Wow. It's amazing how that begins to come into play. And he helps them this way, too. Somebody's going to stay behind. He picks Simeon. I'd pick Simeon, too. I wouldn't trust Simeon back with those guys at all. Simeon's the one who led the slaughter of all those people. 
And he also overheard that Reuben was not really wanting, wanting, Reuben really wanted to set him free. So even though Reuben was the oldest, he chose Simeon to stay back. So guess what? They're now heading back to Canaan. Once they get all this taken care of, minus a brother, and going to explain to dad what happened. Does that ring a bell? That's exactly what happened with Joseph, right? He came back, came back without Joseph. All right? So the brothers needed to see, they needed to feel, they needed to understand their own wickedness. They needed to feel it themselves. What it was like to be falsely accused, what it was like to be thrown in the pit or thrown in prison, what it was like to be under the power of somebody who could literally kill you. And he basically implies here, if Benjamin doesn't come back, it's not going to go well for you. You know, it's unfortunate but true that often we do not understand the wickedness of our own sin until we experience it for ourselves or see it, its effect on somebody else. Sin is wicked. What they did to him was absolute wickedness. Look what it did to the father. He, he, from now, he is in fear, not saying he should be, but he's in fear. He's holding on to Benjamin. There's a rift in the family. There's all these things going on. So here we go. Joseph overhears it. Joseph goes off and weeps. And then he sends them on their way. Now remember, he decided at first that all nine would stay back and one would go. After three days, he decided what? I'm going to keep one. Dead or nine, you go back. And what did he do? He made sure not only did they have the grain they purchased, he made sure they had provision for the trip. They, he put money in their bags and he sent them on their way. God is using Joseph to deal with the sin of his brothers. And really, very, in a very, a very wise way. Who would ever thought that this type of thing would work, but it is working. They're acknowledging their guilt. That's, we're moving. We're making some progress. Finally, not only has God used crises, not only has God used people, but he uses our own consequences from our sin. He uses it. Look at this last part. So here we are in 26. They've loaded the donkeys. They're on their way. They stop for, for lodging and they find the money in the bag. Now, most people who have a clear conscience would go, woohoo! All right, we got it here. We're doing great. What's their response? The Bible says, at this their hearts failed them. Literally, their hearts drained out of them. I tell you what, when you're stuffing down guilt and not dealing with it, you can't even enjoy the good things. Here's a huge blessing. Didn't even charge us for our grain. Oh my gosh, what's God doing now? Now we have this, there's this fear. And it's not just a fear of God. It's a fear of the hammer dropping. I know I've done wrong. I've never had to pay for that. I've never dealt with God on that. When's the hammer going to drop? So they get home to their father. They tell the whole story about how they're honest men and all that again. We hear that honest men stuff over and over again. And then we get down to they start opening the sacks. They opened the sacks and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw the bundles, they were afraid. Now they're going to go back and, and they're going to be labeled as what? Thieves. But notice Jacob's response. Well, let's get this straight. You left, we came back with one less guy, but we all have our money back. Isn't that interesting? Just like before, Joseph went out, you came back, there was some extra stuff jingling in your pocket, you had some extra silver. We don't, you never came up with a good answer of why you had the extra silver. And Joseph is gone. And now you want to do what? Take Benjamin on a trip? This ride is no fun. I'm not going to ride it again. 
Benjamin is not going to go. He blames them for Joseph's loss of Joseph and Simeon. This, this sin of theirs has caused a rift in the family. Listen to this. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob's got a lot to deal with. Jacob has not handled this well. He's now become fearful. He's still showing favoritism. And now he's very suspicious of the brothers, of the sons. Then Benjamin just throws out a crazy statement. Listen, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring you back alive. Reuben said that. What? Why? Well, how's that going to help? We lost Joseph. We lost Simeon. You're going to lose Benjamin. But the good news is we're going to get to kill two grandsons. How does that math work? And, jo- and Jacob says, my, my, my gray head's going to go down to the grave. The pressure is on. The famine continues to be relentless. They're going to have to go back again to deal with this. So what are the consequences of their sin? First, this, this fear of impending doom that's coming upon them. They'd gotten stirred up in, in Egypt. They were thrown in prison. They were treated harshly by Joseph. Now, even the stuff that's good coming their way, they're, they're scared of it. And secondly, look at all the broken, damaged relationships that are in this family. I mean, Reuben's blaming the sons because he told them not to kill, not to, not to sell Joseph off into slavery. They've got all this unresolved... There's no picture here of any of their sins been resolved in any way, shape, or form. There's animosity between dad and the sons. The good news is God's working. God is stirring. He is bringing affliction and kindness to bear on their conscience with the goal of bringing them to repentance and reconciliation. Little boy was out playing by the pond. He had a little boat. The boat got away from him. He started drifting out in the middle of the pond. A man was walked by and saw it. He started throwing rocks. The little boy was just like, "What? What are you doing? What are you doing? It's my boat." He was throwing rocks and throwing rocks. Well, the man was throwing rocks, but he was throwing mock rocks beyond the boat, and the ripples were pushing the boat what back to shore. I'm sure these, these brothers felt that God was throwing rocks at them. Throwing rocks at them. Hurling all these disasters their way. Why? What have I done? What was the purpose? To bring them back. To relationship with each other. Relationship with God. Some people view Joseph and his story as being bitter and vindictive. I don't think so. Look at what happens when they have an open-hearted confession of their guilt. He has to find a place to hide and weep. Look that even though he could have kept all nine in prison and sent one back, he reversed it and sent nine back. Why? It would take nine people with all the grain they could carry on their donkeys to get back to the household with 70 people there. There were 70 people waiting for food. He tells them when they come out of prison, I fear God. That's huge. He does fear God. That probably went right over their head as they came out from the gates of the prison. But he's showing his kindness to them. He only put him in prison for three days. Three. How long was he in prison? Years. How long was he a slave? Years. Twelve years of his life. 
It's been a long time for this dream to be fulfilled. Even after he rises to power as the most powerful man in Egypt, there's seven years of good, good crops and two years of bad. That's nine more years before God begins to move with his providence to put things in place. God's providence moves slowly. Are we able to trust him in those things? And look, he gives them back. He provides them with provisions. He brings them back. And we'll see in the next chapter, he has them in for dinner. If you'll remember their situation, they threw him in the pit and sat down and had dinner. Little different story when you're invited to dinner as opposed to being thrown in the pit and then having dinner while you're watching the meat. Here's a man who knows that for there to be real reconciliation, they're going to have to get to godly sorrow. They can't stop short. And he's going to do what he can by God's grace to bring them to that point of godly sorrow. And he knows in the end, even though they're going to go through some pain right now, there's a far greater good waiting for them down the road. Joseph experienced grace. He's dispensing grace. He is giving it out to his brothers. He's using affliction and kindness to bring them to a point of repentance and reconciliation. He is a picture of one who's greater, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not content for you to stay in your sin. He was not content to let you stuff down your guilt and go on with life and have the kind of mess that this family has in chapter 42. He afflicted you by the Holy Spirit. He afflicted you with circumstances. And if you're a believer, he brought you to the point of not just being sad over what happened, but down to the point of godly sorrow where you truly repented. He loves you more than Joseph loved his brothers. And and Joseph loved his brothers. Christ loved you more than that. And these these three chapters are going to show us how he deals with his brothers who happen to be us. He's a glorious... God uses crises and people and our own consequences for our sin. To remove the self-sufficiency and the pride and to deal with our wickedness that we can be set free and be used for his kingdom. Application number one, what words, people, situations, or places cause your conscience to explode And cry out, guilty. Or those things you've been stuffing down, covering over, hope nobody ever finds out, and not dealing with that. Deal with it. The elders will be happy to help sit down with you and help you get to the point where you deal with your guilt. And are reconciled to God and to whoever else it is. We make fun of this family as being dysfunctional. The reality is we're all sinful people. We're all, we all have wickedness in our heart. And there's things we've done we're sorry we've done. Don't be like the brothers who just continue to act like everything's okay. What's Number two, what sins are you trying to bury? Could it be things you've done in secret that you know are wrong? Could it be people uh, in need that you ignored? Situations where somebody really needed help and you just didn't help them just because you didn't want to. Could it be lies you told people that you loved? Could it be people that you used for your own advantage? We can use people, can't we? For our own purposes. Could it be people that we've made fun of or slandered? 
We just, hey, just had to tell something about so-and-so just so nobody would like them. Or worse, cause them to lose a job. Slander is a vicious thing. It's always true. Sin is not that, not that bad coming from us. It's always more painful coming the other way. Three, remember God's faithful to his promises, even if he takes a while for them to do him to do it. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9, Peter tells the saints, listen, God is not slow regarding his promises, but he's faithful. Not wanting any to perish, but all to what? Come to repentance. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God's providence moves slowly in our mind, but in his is on perfect timing. Here's one for you. How are you using the authority God has given you? The authority you have, are you using it like Joseph is using it to bring people to repentance and reconciliation? Or are you using it for your own purposes? Men in our homes? Bosses at work? Are we using our authority for God's glory and his purposes? Or are we glad we have our authority now and we're going to use it for our own purposes? Number five, examine any crisis in your life. I mean, Joseph had a crisis in his life. Was he at fault? No, he wasn't. But God used it in his life. But is that crisis there to awaken your conscience and bring you to repentance? Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. Is God seeking to encourage you towards spiritual vitality? Maybe you're just kind of floating through life. That's what these brothers are doing, just floating through life. God, God can turn the heat up whenever he wants. And number six, here's one for us. Are you ever in such a hurry to offer forgiveness that you do not help the offending party get down to the point of godly sorrow? There's such, a, there's such a fear among us that we're going to appear to be unforgiving that before anybody even deals with our sin, we go, oh, you're forgiven, no problem. Joseph didn't do that. There wasn't superficial forgiveness here. Joseph helped them come all the way down to the point where they really saw their sin for what it was. Parents, do we do that with our children? Do we take enough time with them to bring them down to the point of godly sorrow? Or are we just too busy and we're going to give a flip and, oh, that's not a problem, honey, just go on, go on. That's not a problem. You've done that 15 times in the last 15 minutes, but that's not a problem. God wants to get us down to godly sorrow. And he'll use crisis, people, and our own consequences to do that. It's cruelty to allow people to continue in their sin while making them feel good about it. If somebody has truly sinned against you, and it's serious, not just some little petty thing, but something serious, we need to help them deal with it. And finally, will you be a Joseph or a Jacob? Jacob didn't do too well handling this affliction. He really didn't. He became fearful. He became dominated by it. And he really became useless for God's work. So remember, God uses affliction and kindness to awaken our conscience and to bring us to repentance and reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this story. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to make application in our own lives. Father, that we would not stuff guilt down that we would bring it out, that we would deal with it, that we would confess it to you. And Lord, if there's somebody here who has something heavy on their heart that they need help with, Lord, I pray that they would seek out somebody spiritual, one of the elders, 
one of the men of the church, or if it's a lady, one of the women of the church, who can give them counsel and encouragement. There's no reason to go another day with a load of guilt. Father, we're grateful that you, as, as good as Joseph is, you are so much better. That you can understand our weaknesses and you understand our sin. And you call us, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May there be no one here, Lord, who leaves with a load of guilt. May, may they find your rest today. In Jesus' name, amen.